0: Hello everyone and welcome to What About the
1: Canadians, a podcast about
0: Canadian history. My name's Shauna,
1: And my name is Ashley. And we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. This season we'll be discussing World War I through a Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles the Canadians served in. So Ashley, how are you doing? Good! Happy New Year!
0: Happy New Year. Oh my gosh, 2022 already.
1: I know. It's like you kind of get excited thinking maybe next year will be different, no more COVID, and then you get these reports that like there's 10,000 cases of of coronavirus mm. in Ontario.
0: <laughs> gosh, I saw that earlier today. I know it's well, and by the time this episode comes out, it's going to be even more than that, I'm sure.
1: Oh, I'm sure. Of, I'm sure of it. I'm. Sh- I'm sure more lockdowns are coming.
0: <laughs> I don't even want to fathom a guess at this point. So, let's talk about more fun things.
1: I have a fun thing. I have a fun thing.
0: <laughs> sure. What's your fun Shana, thing, Shauna?
1: Can you see? Oh, can you see my sweatshirt? <gasps> oh my gosh! Yes.
0: I'm so excited. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I know.
1: So for our listeners, (laughs) (laughs) for people that can't see our screen. (laughs) My husband made me a shirt of, or a sweatshirt of what about the Canadians with our logo and everything. So it's our first prototype that we have merch now. So if you want one. I asked him, did you make Shauna one? He's like, no, I wasn't sure. And I was like, well, if Sha we'll get one for Shauna.
0: Well, yes, I need one. Yes. And we have to give them out as gifts now to everybody as like promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> that is so cool. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, we've got something to work with. Once we like maybe get some more followers, <laughs> we can
0: We need to put a picture of you wearing that. Up on our socials and our website and everything, because that's the coolest thing. I love it. Good job, Tyler.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was pretty surprised by that one.
0: <laughs> I am impressed by that man of yours. Wow.
1: Yeah, me too. I was, I was thoroughly impressed.
0: <laughs> Very cool.
1: I love it. Good. So on that note, what are we talking about today?
0: Today, we're talking about Feste and Givenchy. In my great French accent there. You said
1: it right, too. Good.
0: I know. I didn't say <laughs> Givenchy like I always do.
1: <laughs> you said Givenchy in the last episode, but I was like, well, whatever.
0: <laughs> I will say it again this episode because I i don't know. I sound like a fake saying Givenchy.
1: I know. I'm not posh enough <laughs> to like say it with uh, conviction or confidence.
0: I don't know if you need to be posh enough. I think you just need to be French or, like, Belgian or something like that.
1: I suppose so. <laughs> or, like, an L.A. poser. Yeah, maybe. One, one of
0: those two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so we just came off of the Second Battle of Ypres, but the men are still in that area because that's, like, the most active part of the war for right now, anyway. So they're still hanging around that area. Um, but we thought we would talk about, we'd give a little bit of background information um, before the battle started. And so I was going to start with the Battle of Aubers Ridge. And the Canadians weren't directly involved with that, but it's a little bit important to what's going to come. So here's some setup for that. So while the German army was busy at Ypres and on the Eastern Front against against the Russians... The French commander-in-chief, Joseph Joffre, decided to launch multiple offensives near Artois, Reims, and Verdun. In May of 1915, the Battle of Aubers Ridge was part of the Second Battle of Artois. The area was pretty flat around there, but it was completely zigzagged with drainage dish- ditches. Um, and some that were 15 feet wide and were usually flooded, because it's a pretty rainy region a lot of the time. And that made, the, made it really difficult to fight in because you, ha- you had to build a bridge, basically, or put your ladders across to get from one side to the other. The ridge itself was a pretty minimal rise, and it was about one and a half kilometers to the northeast behind the German lines. And it was only about 35 kilometers south of Ypres. And it wasn't hugely advantageous, but it rose just enough for the Germans to be able to see into the Allied lines. The plan was for the French to attack first and a day later for the British to attack. The first British attack was to be actually at the ridge. And this was originally supposed to go down on May 6th, but it was rescheduled first to the 7th and then to the 9th because of bad weather. Because of the delays though, the British and the French would attack at the same time. And this turned out to come around and bite them in the butt because if all had gone to plan, the British would have attacked after the French, and then the Germans would have been stripped of some of their defenses. So it would have weakened them a little bit and made it easier for the British to break through as well. Right. And another issue was that the Germans had really heavily fortified their defenses in this area, and they had installed new machine gun nests that had clear lines of sight, and they built stronger breastworks as well. Unfortunately, the British intelligence didn't see any of this. So they didn't really have a good idea of what they were going to run into when they attacked. And on top of that, the British were dealing with faulty ammunition because there was supply shortages on the home front. So a lot of their, their bullets were, bullets and shells, I guess, were misshapen or not the right weight. And so it really threw things off for them. And so they went into the battle and at 5 a.m. on May 9th, the British began shelling the German line with shrapnel shells. At 5.30, the guns changed to high-explosive shells, and just after that, the infantry went over the top. But it was almost immediately clear that it wasn't going to go well for the British. The new machine gun nests installed by the Germans were at ground level, so they their trajectory was aimed directly at the soldiers' knees. So it was almost impossible to dodge it or, you know, you're not going to jump over it, but you can't avoid it. That's brutal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was smart for the Germans, but really nasty for the British coming through. And the German artillery, which was left untouched by the British shelling, started firing into no man's land. They kept at it, trying to break through, and while a few did breach through the German trenches, they were really quickly overrun and cut off by the fire on no man's land. The fighting continued until the morning of May 10th, but on the whole, the whole operation was a failure. There were over 11,000 casualties at Aubers Ridge. Wow. That's pretty Yeah, ex- not a successful run there. No.
1: So after the failure at Aubers Ridge, a commander-in-chief of the British Expeditionary Force, Sir John French, met with his French counterpart, Joseph Joffre. Now, the purpose of this meeting was to discuss their next moves. Now, Joffre was eager to continue his offensive plans in the Artois region, and he made it abundantly clear to Sir John French that he was displeased with his delay in providing further aid. However, Joffre kind of overlooked the predicament that Sir John French was in. Now, his second army corps was needed to hold the lines at Ypres, so extra divisions had to be sent to the north line to restore the ground that the French had actually lost, so they're actually kind of covering their butt there. Now, Shauna, you had already mentioned that ammunition was running in short supply. Um, and this was in part because stores were being rerouted to the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey. So to keep up with the demand, factories at home be- kind of began pumping out ammunition at an expedited rate. And like you said, it was kind of at the sacrifices of quality. So with the lack of ammunition supply and with this growing fear on the home front of an impending German invasion, the new army corps could not be sent to the front lines, therefore leaving the first and second corps kind of thinly stretched in that area. Um, So however, Judge French kind of understood that now was the time to put pressure on the Western front uh, as the Germans were moving as many troops as they could spare to Galatia. So he agreed to relieve the French division south of La Basque Canal so Joffre could move his troops south to the more heavily fortified Vimy Ridge. And this is where he had hoped to cut off some important rail supply lines, thus, leaving the British to push through a five kilometer front between Neuve Chapelle and Festubert. Now, Sir John French gave his orders to General Haig, commander of the First Army Corps and the plans were set. So, before we begin, I'm going to give you an outline of the land. Now, the best way to sort of visualize the battlefield is to picture like the grid of a tic-tac-toe game. So looking at the columns, the left is the allied held territory. The middle is no man's land. And the right column is going to be that German held territory. And of course, the two lines dividing these columns are going to be the frontline trenches of the Allies and the Germans. So now the rows are a little bit more complicated to describe. So I'm going to try my best. Now, the, the lines that divide the three rows of the grid represent two roads that actually run parallel to each other in kind of the southwest to northeast direction. And these roads are called Rue Caillou which is the northern road, and La Quinca Rue, which is the southern road. I hope I said that right. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea.
0: <laughs> Even if you didn't, it sounded really good. Thank you. We'll stick with it. I keep picturing Rue when you say it with those words as R-O-O instead of R-U-E. I don't know why. It just sounds cute. Well, you Roo,
1: you can think of Kanga. You know, bouncing along the road. (laughs) (laughs) It works. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so again, thinking of that tic-tac-toe grid, in the top right quadrant, the Germans build a quadrilateral or like basically a rectangle of trenches um, that connect to the front lines. And running through that quadrilateral is another trench called Aldebar Alley. So Aldebaran Alley doesn't exactly run par- parallel to Rue Caillou. It actually kind of intersects with it because it runs in the northwest to southeast direction. But you can still kind of imagine it running sort of west to east, or you could even just think of it as like Rue Caillou turning into Aldebaran Alley Trench. Now in the bottom right quadrant of our tic-tac-toe grid, which is just south of La Rue. The Germans reinforced their occupied territory with two parallel breastworks, simply because the, the water table in the area was high. Um, and quite simply, they aptly named these the North and South breastworks. So for those of you that don't know, a breastwork is kind of the opposite of a trench. So instead of digging down, you're building upwards. So essentially you're creating this wall of sandbags um, and of course, these breastworks are running perpendicular to the German front uh, line. So they too are running in this like e- west-east type direction. So essentially attacking anywhere between Rue Caillou and Aldebert Alley, the northern breastwork or the southern breastwork, the Allies are going to be surrounded on multiple fronts. So again, just like picture sending your troops into that middle quadrant on the right-hand side of that tic-tac-toe board. It's really not an ideal situation to be in. So starting on the north end of the battlefield, which is north of Rue and Algebra Alley, we have the Lahore and Meerut divisions of the Indian Corps, followed by the second division of the British First Army Corps. Now, in that area between Aldebar Alley and the Northern Breastwork, we have the 7th Division of the British 1st Army Corps, which will be aided by the Canadian 3rd Brigade on May 18th. But we're going to get into that. Sean is going to take you into that. But for now, we're going to follow the 1st British Corps and the Indian Corps um, in the beginning stages of this battle. So... The objective of the Allied forces was to push through to the village of Violin, and that's located on the southeast side of the German trenches. Now, Hay gave the orders to conduct a two-pronged attack, with the 2nd Division to launch a night assault on the German support trenches, with support from the Miret Division on its left flank. Now, meanwhile, the 7th Division to the south would advance in the morning light convening with the 2nd Division, and then ideally both divisions would advance to La Rue. So starting on the morning of May 13th, the Allies began a two-day bombardment of the German lines. Now, over 400 guns began firing on a 5,000-yard front. Now, the six-and-a-half howitzers targeted the German parapets, while the four four-and-a-half and a half inches hit the support and communication trenches. Now, the 18 pounders, which I like to call the big boys, were given kind of the task of destroying the barbed wire, protecting the German lines. Now, I mean, arguably you could maybe see this as being a little bit of a waste of time because the shells used at the time were not designed for the purpose of destroying barbed wire. It was overall rather ineffective. But I guess if you don't have other options, like, you have to do what you can do. Like, you have to do something. You can't just leave it, so. I I would think that any explosive
0: hitting barbed wire would do the job. No?
1: No, um, it doesn't. It will detonate before it hits the barbed wire. And uh, we're actually going to talk about that in our episode on the Battle of Vimy Ridge, so maybe we'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> because they are there will be advancements, because they realize that <laughs> these shells don't destroy barbed wire.
0: <laughs> it just wasn't working. They had to figure something else out, right? That, that's right. Uh,
1: so, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. All right, so before zero hour on the night of the 15th of May, the Lahore Division was instructed to fire at random throughout the last bombardment. However, this kind of raised suspicions of the Germans, and it put them on high alert. Oh, maybe you can hear my puppy. That's Shelby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I've heard a few little barks, and I thought, oh, is that my dog? Oh, no. No, No, that's all your fault. That's Shelby, she's grumpy. Uh,
1: So German scouts spotted Indian soldiers placing bridges over those large dikes that you were talking about. Um, And they had to do this because it was really the only effective way to cross into no man's land. Uh, But unbeknownst to the Indian soldiers, the Germans had started concentrating their machine guns opposite of these bridges. So at zero hour, as the first wave of men began crowding the bridges, the Germans opened fire. And one by one, the bodies began piling on top of each other until it was no longer possible to advance across the bridges. So we are not having a good start here. So the 5th Brigade of the 2nd Division to the south of the Lahore Division wasn't exactly faring much better either. Um, Flares had been sent over no man's land uh, so it kind of forced the men back into the trenches because the Germans had opened fire on them. Although they were unable to advance, the 6th Brigade, with support of the Miret Division, made it over the parapet into No Man's Land with kind of relative ease, I mean, at least initially. But again, unfortunately, because of activities in the north, it alerted at me it alerted the Germans um, opposite of the six and they too fired flares overhead. Now these men were already halfway into no man's land so the six was forced to make a mad dash to t- towards the German front lines. So dodging machine gun fire and sniper bullets the soldiers leapt into the German lines killing or capturing German soldiers while they push forward into their support trenches. So now wanting to sort of capitalize on the success of the 6th Brigade, the artillery bombarded the German lines for an additional 30 minutes at 3.45 a.m. on May 16th. But as another wave of soldiers from both the Mirat and 2nd Divisions were sent over the parapets, they were immediately shot down by the Germans. So, with the general failure of the offensive attack by the 2nd Mira and Lahore divisions, Haig called off further advancements along these lines and moved the northern boundary of their offensive further south. So, so far, we're kind of having a little bit of, of mixed success. Um doesn't seem like it's going so well, but let's see. Let's see how it goes. Okay, so we're going to look at those lines now between Aldebarre Alley and the Northern Breastwork um, to cover the morning attack of the 7th Division. So if you remember, this is the second stage of that two-prong attack. Now, I also just wanted to point out like the Canadian 3rd Brigade has not yet arrived on the scene to help the 7th. So we're still following the British Expeditionary Force at this point. Okay, so we do need to jump back in time just, just a smidge here. So going to 2.45 a.m. on May 16th, uh, we have that a 30-minute bombardment on the German parapets. But uh, while waiting on this road called Prince's Road for zero hour, Uh, the German machine gunners began firing on the 2nd Borders and 2nd Scots Guard of the 20th Brigade. So just to give you a picture, the Borders and Scots Guards are almost directly across from the quadrilateral, and their given objective was to capture the German front lines and run past this quadrilateral towards the northern breastwork. Now, in order to avoid getting hit by this German um, like machine gun fire, they had to run through the protection of their own artillery barrage to make it through the German trenches. So I have to give major credit to the borders. Like, even being under fire by the Germans and their own artillery, they managed to capture the first trench and they crossed over Rue de Cailloux. Um, but again, like you said, Shauna, like those darn dikes, they're just such a major problem. Um, and it prevented them from reaching that northern breastwork. So uh, the borders ha- suffered, of course, heavy casualties, especially on that left flank closest to the quadrilateral. Now, on the other hand, the Scots Guard, which were covered by the first Welsh fusiliers, successfully made it beyond La Kinga Now, 80 of the men even made it as far as the orchard, located on the north end of the breastwork. But the British military artillery was basically firing short, and it forced the Welsh Fusiliers to fall back behind the Queen Carew, leaving the men at the orchard to fight off a counterattack by the Germans. Unfortunately, only four men were left alive to be captured. I don't think these orchards seem to work out well for the Canadians. No, no, they're not quite what they hoped they would be, hey? Yeah, cause didn't they have the same issue at um, Ypres? At the orchard? Was it at the orchard? No, that was at no, Kitchener's Wood.
0: No. Yeah, that's Kitchener's Wood. You're thinking of the orchard that's coming up a little later. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Woods, orchards, it's not <laughs> They're all just trees. The Canadians and trees aren't doing so good. <laughs> okay. Oh, this is all this. This battle is a mouthful. I will give. <laughs> I'll give yeah, that. it's
0: it's a lot, and it's a lot of like really bad planning and bad luck and unsuccessful things going on. But the only good thing is that the Canadians aren't really involved yet.
1: That's true. That's true. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. Maybe things will turn. (laughs) (laughs) You're
0: hopeful, aren't you? I I am.
1: So moving slightly south opposite of the northern breastwork, we have the 2nd Queens and South Stafford Battalions of the 22nd Brigade. So right out of the gate, the 2nd Queens were hit by heavy machine gun fire. So they called for another 15-minute bombardment of the German trenches. And it actually was Effective, it was enough to get the support companies to the main lines, and it allowed the South Staffords to enter the northern breastwork at a junction called Stafford Corner. I don't know if that was named before or after, but (laughs) I'm assuming after. (laughs) Uh, It was at this corner that they captured over 700 meters of German communication and support trenches, and they took over 100 prisoners. Now, unfortunately, the breastwork between the German mainline and the Stafford corner had been trapped with 20 mines. So Sergeant Major Frederick Barter weaved through the trenches and deactivated like every single mine so the Staffords could safely occupy the trench. And his heroic actions earned him the Victoria Cross. Wow, that's impressive. That is. I learned today that only 73 Canadians in World War 1 won the Victoria Cross. Wow, that's not very many. It's not very many, so his actions must
0: have been pretty ex- like extraordinary. Did they just not want to give them out to Canadians or was it just that, you know, it was just such a rare honor?
1: You know what? I don't know how many British received it, so that would be interesting to see comparison, like comparatively mm-hmm. Maybe I'll look at that and let you know next episode. But um, just for our listeners, like we've mentioned the Victoria Cross like quite a few times. But for those of you that don't know, um, the Victoria Cross is the highest decoration for valor in the British military. Now, Canada also has a Victoria Cross, but it wasn't actually implemented till 1993, which I found. Wow, that's really late. Yeah, I found that super surprising. So, if you won the Victoria Cross it would have come from the British military. I I guess that kind of makes sense, but 93
0: is like in World War 1 it would have made sense, but you know, if you won it in I don't know, the the 80s, did they <laughs> that doesn't make as much sense. I don't know what they would have given out a Victoria Cross for in the 80s, but
1: um uh, don't know. I'm not as up on modern military history. It's not my shtick, but... Uh, no, nor am I. Yeah, so... I don't know. Might be a rabbit hole for someone to go down. hmm Okay, Uh, so getting back um, on 7... Oh, not on 7 a.m., but by 7 a.m. on the morning of the 16th of May, the 22nd Brigade had advanced over 600 meters, but they're... Position kind of remained precarious as both the second Queen's and Welsh Fusiliers took heavy losses and their right flank was uh, exposed after the second border and Scots Guard fell back. So, again, we're still having that mixed success. So, to recap, because this is all a lot of information. Uh, the 6th Brigade of the 2nd Division has secured an area of trench north of Aldebar Allery near a road called Cinder Track, and the 22nd Brigade of the 7th Division is holding on to parts of that north breastwork, meaning there's kind of this huge gap. In the line that the Allies have taken over. General Monroe, who is the commanding officer of the 2nd Division, ordered the 6th and 20th Brigades to close the 1,000 meter gap between them at 10 a.m. in the morning. Now, the 6th Brigade was to move towards the Firm Corps d'Evore. It's a farm. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. Um, And this farm is just north of Algebra Alley. um, And the 20th Brigade was given kind of the rather daunting task, kind of at least in my opinion, to attack that quadrilateral. Now, keep in mind, although the 6th Brigade is holding on to parts of the German trenches on the north end of the battlefront, Their position is tentative. I mean, the Germans still occupied the surrounding communication trenches, uh, which made it easy for them to attack no man's land in that area. Therefore, like the support troops just couldn't bring forward the ammunition that they needed for this attack. But I mean, regardless, you have to kind of do what you're told. So the first grenadier guards of the 20th Brigade moved into no man's land through a half dug trench and successfully captured over 300 yards of German trenches. Now, meanwhile, the South Staffords moved um, to capture another 800 yards of trenches along that northern breastwork to a point called Willow's Corner. Now, there they captured over 190 Germans. Now, by 7.30 that night, the Welsh Richeliers again attempted to reach the far end of the northern breastwork near the orchard but they fell back due to heavy German shelling. So whatever troops were left from the Welsh Fusiliers, the 2nd Queens, and border battalions of the 20th Brigade, they again had to withdraw behind La Quinca Rue. So General Haig ordered the 7th Division to again close the gap at 245 on May 17th after another artillery bombardment, meaning... Like, round two, let's go. But, I mean, this barbarment this time was so devastating, especially on that quadrilateral, that 450 survivors of, like, German soldiers, they advanced towards the British front lines and they surrendered. So by 9.30 a.m., the Royal Scott Fusiliers and the 2nd New York Shires of the 21st Brigade were able to capture the largely abandoned quadrilateral. So luckily for, I guess, our Allied soldiers, the artillery, they did their job. So by this time, the German units opposite of Willow's Corner withdrew by 1,000 meters. But unfortunately, the British observers didn't even notice this retreat, so... I think they kind of missed out on an opportunity there. Um, so by noon, General Haig calls for the 3rd Canadian Brigade for support, and he moves the Indian Corps to the 5th Brigade's position so they can provide support for further attacks. Now, Haig directs the 1st Corps to focus their attention towards La Basque Canal and Violaine. By 730, the 21st Brigade has now staged an attack on that southern breastwork, but the men encountered a number of flooded ditches. And I mean, although some of them were able to make it to the southern breastwork, unfortunately, many of them retreated or drowned. So again, that's why these huge dikes are a big problem for our Allied soldiers. At the same time, the Germans have moved into newly prepared trench lines that extend from the southern breastwork up to Singer Track. And this movement goes unseen by the British. And then they begin shelling the British along the Queen Karoo. So I don't know what these British scouts are doing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're not doing a good job. They've missed a whole lot so far.
1: Yes, they've missed some stuff. Now, if that wasn't enough, the 21st Brigade was again commanded to attack on the southern breastwork at 3 a.m. on the 18th of May. However, the weather had taken a turn, and at this point, the visibility through the rain was poor. So, with little other movement until the afternoon, General Haig then calls in the Canadians and the 51st Highland Division for relief. So that ends the first part of Festbear, and I know that is just so much, and it's so hard to follow. Um, I don't know about what about you, Shauna, but um, compared to like Vimy Ridge or like Somme or Passchendaele, there's just not as much information about these smaller battles. So you're kind of left like taking some of the <laughs> just the basics of trying to go through
0: this battle. <laughs> For there not to be as much information, and really there isn't comparatively, but we just talked for like over a half an hour <laughs> about the beginning <laughs> of this battle. Like the Canadians aren't even there yet. I know. So there, I mean, yeah, that's still a whole lot of information. So if you're still with us,
1: all right, good on ya. Yeah, thanks guys. I know that was more like a tactical type talk, but uh, that's what we got for <laughs> you on today. Just going to take you through the next part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see how this goes. All right, now it's going to get more interesting for the Canadians here. So the Canadians had their part in the offensive beginning on May 18th, and it was Arthur Curry's 2nd Brigade and Turner's 3rd Brigade that were in the trenches along with the British and some of the Indian corps. Their objective was to capture the enemy trenches in the orchard, which was a key enemy strong point. But unfortunately, there were a lot of hurdles to overcome if they had any chance of succeeding. To begin with, there was absolutely nothing in place to facilitate communication between the British and the Canadians who were supposed to be supporting each other. So they were just flying blind, nothing there to talk. Um, And the maps that the troops were given were absolutely atrocious. They were actually completely inaccurate in their measurements, and they were off by several, several hundred meters. And they were even printed geographically backwards, so south was at the top and north was at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually
1: surprised they were given
0: maps. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was a bit of a surprise, but they weren't any good to them whatsoever, so it didn't even matter that they were given maps. They had numbers printed on them uh, for the enemy positions, but nobody knew what those numbers meant. And they had lines for hedges and roads and landmarks and different things there, but they didn't make any sort of distinction as to what those landmarks were. So you could be running into a hedge or a big ditch or a road, you had no idea whatsoever. And they were called cartographic monstrosities. Which I love that name for them. (laughs) Oh, what was it called? Cartographic monstrosities. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So very poetic. So, and of course, to make matters worse, because there's always something worse. It was in the open during daylight. My favorite thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we've both found Mm -hmm. our things to like, just get riled up about. Yeah,
0: this is definitely (laughs) mine. It seems to be the theme for the Canadians attacking. Because if you listen to our last episode on Ypres, there's a pattern. (sighs) To me, it seemed like the higher-ups, this is going to be a little controversial, and I don't mean it to be because I am totally an armchair historian here, but it almost seemed like they wanted them to fail. Like they're giving them these crappy, totally inaccurate maps, and they kept information from the troops and the lower ranking officers. And I know that's a super bold claim to make, but it sounds like the plot of a movie where there's like some German infiltrator and he's in with the higher ups and he's sabotaging the allies, giving them all this crappy stuff to deal with. <sighs> you <Yeah. laughs> put a lot of thought into this, Sean. <laughs> It's just so (laughs) frustrating to be able to have this hindsight and look back and read about these battles and see all of the horrible things that these poor men had to deal with over and over and over again.
1: Maybe you'll start some new conspiracy (laughs) theories or something.
0: I'm not generally a
1: conspiracy (laughs) theorist
0: or not even generally. I'm not at all. But it just seems so terrible to me that there had to be some reason for mm-hmm. all of these bad things to be going on, all these terrible plans. Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> I'll keep going. Okay. <laughs> so 5 PM was zero hour and the troops were supposed to go over the top and the barrage stopped. But since there was no communication, the artillery kept firing. So the Canadians couldn't safely go over. The British did end their barrage and the troops went over the top, which means that they were exposed on their flank and they ended up taking fire from straight on and the side. And the barbed wire and machine guns that they were hoping to destroy with the barrages were still intact. About 25 minutes later, the Canadian artillery fire stopped, but the officers realized that if they sent their men in, they'd be running into a slaughter with the enemy still at a very aggressive strength. But if they didn't, the British to the north would take on additional fire. So reluctantly, they advanced their troops. And just as they expected, they ran straight into heavy fire on an open battlefield in daylight. So the Canadians were able to capture some German trenches, but that was mostly due to a light German retreat into a secondary line that was more heavily fortified. Unsurprisingly, once they got into these trenches, They didn't want to go forward anymore and hit even more blatant fire. The Germans had continued their artillery bombardment through the whole attack and had easily displaced the Canadian and British troops with their accuracy. But the Canadian artillery just couldn't keep up since there was no communication between them and what was going on in the front. They couldn't couldn't, uh, risk adjusting their guns and decimating their own men. Though the Canadians did hold their position and straightened out the line after capturing about half a kilometer of the battlefield, they were exhausted and most had to, most had run out of food and water and some resorted to drinking water out of shell holes, but most refrained because of the prolific amount of corpses in close proximity. Oh God, you would get so sick. Oh, I I read a story and I didn't actually put it in my notes, but I'm going to say it now. Uh, there was a story about uh, a Canadian soldier who got some water out of a trench and made tea with it. So I think he boiled it somehow, and it was in, uh, when it was dark out, and he went back to the same trench the next day, and he looked down, and there was a face staring up at him from that trench. <laughs> oh my- so he stopped immediately drinking from the trenches. Ugh. <sighs> uh. <sighs> So let's shake that one off and keep going here. The battle continued into daylight on May 19th, and the Germans took full advantage of any sloppily dug trenches with snipers sneaking onto their flank and picking them off, and with shrapnel artillery bursting over the Canadians' new position. On May 20th, they were preparing for another attack, again, in daylight. And Turner was pretty fed up with sending his troops into what they called the meat grinder and tried to attack t- tried to have the attack pushed off until ten fifteen at night. And he even went to the divisional headquarters to plead his case to General Alderson, but he was refused and had no choice. But in Alderson's defense, he was under pressure from British General Haig, who was under pressure from the French. So it was kind of a top-down trickle-down effect there. So on May 20th at 7.45 p.m., the artillery slowed to a stop and the men went over the top to another full frontal attack against the dug-in, well-defended Germans. But again, the Canadians proved their grit, and by the end of the night, the 16th Battalion had captured uh, their objective of the Orchard. So it was renamed the Canadian Orchard in their honour. But even though they reached their point, it was territory that was soon given up to straighten out the line, So a lot of men, especially Turner, thought that the 250 casualties that happened there were for absolutely nothing. On short notice, Arthur Curry's 2nd Brigade, which was on Turner's 3rd Brigade's left, I believe, was ordered to coordinate an attack along along with Turner's, even though they weren't supposed to do anything until the next day. So working with absolutely no notice, and no maps, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the maps were probably... Wrong. They were given the objective capturing K-5, which was a confluence of some German trenches. But the biggest problem was that no one could find them. Mm. (laughs) Even during the reconnaissance, crawling through the mud, nobody had any idea where they were. And Curry was so mad. He tried to push back the attacks since he had been notified that the artillery had done almost nothing to get rid of any barbed wire, and the German trenches were still fully intact. But again, Alderson at headquarters refused and ordered Curry to go along with the plan. But it seemed the plan could change because at the last minute, the howitzers that were supposed to be giving support fire were redirected, so it wouldn't tip off the Germans. But that didn't seem to matter because the Germans knew since they had... Auber's Ridge that we talked about before at the beginning of the episode. They could see everything that was going on, so they could see the attack coming. So the best Curry could do was select a small force of two companies of Calgarians and some Grenadiers, and it was too small to be effective, but he didn't want to send in more men that was necessary because they're basically going into execution. And I don't know how you choose those men or decide who goes into that but that had to have weighed on him like crazy. So at 7.45, along with Turner's brigade, they started their attack. But the thing was that the only way out was actually a narrow communication tunnel that made the men come out single file. And it didn't take long for the Germans to notice this, and they just started picking them off as they came out. The suicide mission was called off pretty quickly by the last company commander, And there's no actual evidence that the Grenadiers made it out, or even attempted to make it out of the trenches. And the Calgarians made it a sad 100 meters before digging in. And we're not done yet. The Canadians were lined up for a third attack on May 21st. It was supposed to happen at daybreak. But the coordination with the artillery was lacking, so it was postponed till 8.30 p.m. So at least they were going to get a little bit of shadow and dusk there to give them some sort of protection. And which honestly surprised me, because at this point in my research, I figured they would just be ordered to go anyway, even though they had no idea what was going to happen with their artillery. When they were able to line everything up, they climbed out of their trenches and... I was really confused by reading this, so I, I'm i not quite sure what they were thinking because everything else I read when they would go over the top in an attack was they would just, you know, blow a whistle and everybody would go. But for some reason, their officers made them line up on the field and wait for everyone to come out? Like it was a battle in, you know, 17-something? I, I don't know if I read that properly, but I found it in two different sources, so... That's uh, bizarre. yeah, i'm not I'm not sure if maybe I read that wrong. It seems too weird to be true. But they just stood there uh, before they started their attack. So I don't know. <laughs> um, he says it was uh, the book that I was reading says it was part of the existing doctrine, and it just sounds like a firing squad to me. So I'm not sure. Hmm. Um, so I guess after they stand in this line, they were going to start to cross no man's land but they were actually sort of successful and cleared some of the German trenches and they began fortifying the trench on the other side. So it was like the trench flipped Um, and they were taking care of everything else they needed to take care of, like getting any medical help or bringing in more ammo. And the Germans tried a few times to break the Canadian line, but they failed. So at this point in my research, I started to get a little bit mad, as you can tell. (laughs) I'm talking a lot with my hands. Ashley can see that in it's, that. I'm, I'm very little, worked
1: up. You're a little more emotionally involved in this battle, Shauna.
0: It just, you know, after Ypres, it, I was so mad at all the daylight attacks and open field that I thought maybe they they wouldn't do that again. But they did a lot. <laughs> 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 so, I was actually, I was researching it and I was sitting on the couch and I was just huffing around and complaining and my husband was sitting there and I was just, he was laughing at me. And it just, it just seems so avoidable for these men to die. But they sent them there anyway. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Festivere was a comp- constant onslaught of artillery bombardment aimed at the Canadians. And this led to an obscene amount of shell shock, which is what they called this type of post-traumatic stress in those days. And it manifested in a lot of different ways from uncontrollable crying in the trenches to way on the other spectrum to suicide. Hmm. And this battle really highlighted the kind of effect that modern warfare could have on some of the strongest men. And although back then many believed that shell shock was actually a physical condition where the brain had been shaken around too much and it was concussive because of all the artillery. It was really getting harder to deny that even these tough soldiers' mental condition or mon- mental health could suffer under these just horrible conditions. Now, they had to gain they had gained little ground and they had failed so badly. But Haig again ordered an attack on K-5, which was that confluence of German trenches. There was still little artillery support, but at least they had brought in some Colt machine guns to at least give a little bit of support to the advancing troops and give them a bit of a chance. The other weapon of choice was quickly becoming the grenade or the, I love this name, the Tommy Tickler's Artillery. (laughs) (laughs) Like a
1: different type of uh... (laughs) a
0: tool? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These, (laughs) These were handmade bombs and they were made out of jam tins stuffed with nails and bolts and gun cotton and explosives and detonators and fuses and all the stuff that goes into a bomb. And men could crawl across no man's land in the dark and throw some into the German trenches. On May 24th, they could, they go over again, but at least this time it was at night. And they went over at 2.45 a.m. and actually surprised the Germans, thankfully. So they were able to clear some of the trenches with their bombs or their Tommy ticklers and their bayonets. But by 4.45, they needed reinforcements and had lost half of their force. When the reinforcements made it forward, they were able to push the Germans back and actually force the Germans to abandon K-5. Now, once Haig got word that the Canadians were making ground, he pushed them even further and he even sent in the cavalrymen to continue the advance. But thankfully, the higher-ups understood that the horses would not stand a chance in that boggy, shell-pitted no-man's land. So the men went on foot as support. So in the end, the Canadians had 2,605 casualties and gained 600 meters. Brutal. Not very much. Yeah. And if it sounded like I repeated myself, what was it, like three times? It's because I mostly did. For some reason, the high command continued to think that ordering attack in broad daylight in an open field with little or no artillery or completely ineffective artillery support was gonna win it for them. But really it just ended up costing way too many lives and giving Alderson and Hag a really, really bad names. And Turner and Curry had no choice, but it didn't make them look too hot either. So it was just basically no win whatsoever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. Anyway, we're going to jump over now um, to the Battle of Givenchy. Uh, So after the Battle of Festubert, the Canadians were moved a few kilometers south to hold the line between La Basque Canal to what we are now going to call the Canadian Orchard. Um, And this was the center position held by the 4th Corps. So this center position also happened to be near the town of Givenchy. So the front lines provided a much-needed strategic advantage for the Canadians. Not only were they dry, making it easier to move through, but they held the high ground, making it easier to t- conceal troops, which was especially important in areas where the distance between the Canadian and German front lines were only 75 yards. Now, in light of the failure of Festubert, General Haig called for another offensive attack on June 2nd, to provide continued support for the French offensive. However, advancements to the south had to be delayed for several days, so the Canadians enjoyed some much-needed rest. By the 15th, General Rawlinson, commander of the 4th British Corps, called for an attack on the lines between Chapelle Saint-Roch, or Roche, I'm not sure, and Rue Auvergne. Now, preparations began on June 13th with a bombardment of the enemy wire so troops could more easily maneuver into the German front lines. Now, three 18-pounder guns were moved into positions to attack two German strongpoints called H2 and H3. They get really creative with these names.
0: (laughs) I think they probably had to be a little bit secretive. They didn't want to be like that trench right over there, you know, five kilometers north of wherever.
1: And they're easy to remember.
0: Yeah, unless you put it on a yeah, map, not tell anybody what it means.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so anyway, I'm thinking they might've had some issues concealing these guns um, as they were brought forward at the Aubers Ridge battle. So this time they had put rubber on the wheels so they couldn't be couldn't be heard. Um, it was actually kind of interesting. I went on a little bit of a, a tangent. Um, the British actually had a monopoly on rubber during World War One um, because they had cut off important supply lines to the Germans. And if you look up um, German World War One bicycles, you'll notice that the wheels are actually like made of small like springs where you would expect to see a rubber tire. <laughs> and it's because the Germans didn't have rubber like they tried to make synthetics, but it. It didn't work. So Google Google it. It's really funny to look at. (laughs) So by the afternoon of the 15th, the 1st Canadian Battalion gathered in the assembly trench to wait for the assault. Now, luckily, two days prior, their Ross rifles had been replaced by the more reliable Lee Enfields. Oh, thank God. I won't go on a tangent on that today. (laughs) Not today. (laughs) Listen
0: to our other episodes and you can hear that tangent. That's right.
1: So at 5.45 p.m., the three 18-pounder guns began blasting the German parapets with the intention of disabilizing their forward machine guns. However, the guns situated across from H3 did not open fire because they had fear of hitting their own men. So the German machine gunners were left untouched. Furthermore, the prior two day bombardment on the German wire made it very obvious where the Canadians had planned to attack. So the Germans began firing heavy artillery in the Givenchy area where the infantry were still waiting in their assembly trenches. So not only did they take heavy casualties, but two 18 pounder guns uh, were destroyed. Now, two minutes before zero hour, the British engineers of the 176 tunneling company detonated a giant mine under the German lines with the intention of blowing up that H2 position. However, because the mine was placed short of its intended target, Uh, The strong point was not destroyed, and it actually detonated some bomb reserves in the Canadian front lines. I I didn't read if anyone died or had casualties for that, but it doesn't sound good all around.
0: No, that doesn't sound good at all. That sounds like a really
1: bad mistake. Yeah. So at zero hour, as the converging barrage lifted, the 1st Battalion's leading company charged through no man's land into the German trenches. However, the third and fourth waves to follow were hit by heavy machine gun fire from H3 and any attempts by the Canadians to bomb towards H3 were thwarted by German counterbombing. So now for the few companies occupying the German trenches, their situation became dire as their flank was left exposed because the 7th Division of the British Corps had failed to advance. Now, in order to protect the line, a lieutenant or lieutenant I almost said lieutenant. I always (laughs) say lieutenant. I try to say. There's no F in that word. But it's a Canadian (laughs) presidency. So Lieutenant F.W. Campbell took his machine gun to the German front. Um, Noting that the tripod was broken, Private H. Vincent had Campbell put the machine gun on his back so Campbell could fire When the ammunition ran short, Campbell fell back severely wounded while Private Vincent dragged the gun behind him. That is hardcore. I can't, I can't imagine. Like that would feel like um, a jackhammer on your back.
0: Yeah, like here, just lay down.
1: Let me do this to you, hold on. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Um, So Private Vincent was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal And Lieutenant Campbell, um, he unfortunately died from his injuries, Uh, but it was later said that no man died that night with more glory. And for his bravery, he was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross. So now at 10 p.m. that evening, the 1st Battalion had to evacuate their position as they were short on reinforcements and supplies and the 2nd and 3rd Battalions fighting alongside a mine crater were being held. Now, at 4.45 p.m. on the 16th of June, the 3rd Battalion was ordered to renew attacks following a two-hour bombardment. However, the Germans were ready, and the Canadians once again were met with heavy machine gun fire. I feel like we're just saying the same thing over and over Yeah, time. it just kind of keeps repeating, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> So not a single soldier made it further than 25 yards from their own trench. So with neither the British or Canadians able to advance and the offensive in Artois coming to an end, General Haig called an end to the assault at Givenchy. Um, And in this battle, 802 Canadians, um, let me rephrase that, Uh, the Canadians suffered 802 casualties with 306 dead.
0: Wow. So, so n- nothing went well in these battles, not seemed. particularly. But
1: um I'm glad I'm glad we I'd never heard of these battles.
0: Before. No, I actually I put that in my notes too. I had I had no idea about them. Not I had never heard these words
1: before at all. No, neither had I and a lot of Canadians lost their lives in this battle. And it's interesting because some of the history books I read kind of refer to it as like a mere blip. Mm -hmm. And like there really wasn't a lot of material on this battle, hence why we largely focused on the movements of the soldiers, because that's what was available. But I mean, these men sacrificed their lives. And when you went through that discussion about their mental health, it really hits home. Like no battles, just a blip on the page, right?
0: Yeah, it seemed crazy to me. I I had notes as I was going along, and it seemed like, you know, su- I had never heard of it. You had never heard of it, and I thought maybe you know nobody wants to talk about their failures, so you focus on the big battles that were you know more glorious, like Vimy, that we talk about a little bit later on. Um, you know that was billed as a, a success, and. Nobody wants to talk about these ones because they were so bad. But they were important still because of these men. They lost their lives. They had such a terrible time there. And there were so many mistakes made. But it wasn't didn't seem all that important. If you look at it online, I could find, like, a few paragraphs on, you know, the Canadian websites about, about these battles. And that was it.
1: Yeah. I think, too, though, we have to remember, like, these guys are green we don't they don't have a long history of a, like a you know a big prominent military like they had that three thousand man militia
0: yeah that's true mm-hmm. it was actually kind of
1: interesting when i was reading on like the different regiments in the british um divisions like they have histories going back to the 16
0: the 1700s and like they have this whole history whereas a lot of these um, battalions and whatnot were, for Canada was made and like formed in World War One, right? Yeah, that's the only history we have, really, for Canadians in the war. But, I mean, I think regardless, every soldier, you know, unless this was a whole new war, unless they were in the Boer War, but even that was a totally different situation. So, everybody was kind of green in these situations, and they they made a lot of mistakes and it cost a lot of lives. And it seemed like, you know, this this battle, these battles were kind of swept under the rug.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, we'll see how the next few go. I know there's Hopefully a, a little bit better. Ah, I know there's a big one coming up that's not gonna go so well.
0: <laughs> no, but it's gonna be interesting and we can get all riled up again. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We're What About the Canadians. You can find us online at whataboutthecanadians.com. You can see us on social media at uh, What About the Canadians on Facebook and Instagram. And we'd love to get in touch and keep listening. And we'll be out with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.